HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on Sunday morning. It is um, 1 o'clock and I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street where brunch is being served. Uh, This program is going to be all about policy, politics, professionals, and power. I just made that up. No, but it is going to be a lot of policy and politics. Um, what's happening in our food chain and whether or not it is meeting our needs for the 21st century. So um, to that end, in the next uh, half hour, we're going to be visiting again with my friends at the Catskill Mountain Keeper Organization up in the Catskills. Um, this is actually a second appearance for my guest today, Wes Gillingham. He was on in July 2010, um, episode 62 of the main course, in case you want to look back in the archives. Um, talking about hydrofracking. Well, the debate has only gotten hotter, and our Governor uh, Cuomo seems to be poised to accept some regulations that have been proposed um, by the Department of Energy in New York. Um, You can look at those regulations yourself if you want to Google them. It's not hard to see what's being proposed. Um, And then a few weeks ago on episode 111 of the main course, we had Ramsey Adams, who was the executive director of Catskill Mountain Keeper, and he was on the show with Dennis Holbrook of North Star Energy Production and the public relations spokesman for the New York Independent Oil and Gas Association. And uh, Mr. Holbrook was such an effective communicator that um, actually the time allotted to each guest became disproportionately skewed in favor of his association, the Independent Oil and Gas Association. So I wanted to revisit some of the assertions that he made 
and um, give Wes a chance to comment on some of the things that he brought up um, or commented on himself uh, to see, you know, where the where things lie. There's the truth is always somewhere in the middle and um, and probably more on you know one side than the other. But <clears throat> I think we know which side that is. So um, in just a second, we'll be back with Wes Gillingham, uh, the program director of Catskill Mountain Keeper, and we'll continue our discussion of hydrofracking in the Marcellus Shale Fields in upstate New York. Hey, Wes. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. Welcome to Straight No Chaser. Um, do you remember me from 2010, the last time you were on the show? I do. It's a pleasure to be back again. I'm so glad you could join us today. So um, I don't know if you got a chance to take a look at my show outline, but um, I did want to revisit some of the things that Mr. Holbrook uh, brought up during his discussion with Ramsey about uh, the impact of uh, hydrofracking in the upstate New York area, particularly in sort of the breadbasket of the state and around the Catskills, where our water supply uh, generally emanates from. So um, the first thing that he said that I, I really found kind of incomprehensible was about um, the impact of flooding and on on where water is stored when the, what, what's called the flow back water for those of you who are not familiar flow back water is is the water that comes back up from the ground after uh, it's been pumped in through the shale to release the natural gas so according to mr holbrook um there will no longer be uh open containers thus subject to flooding now there is going to be storage containers can you explain how you could possibly store this much water and how much water we're talking about well, they they use a number of times, you know, the photographs you see with the chemical to- totes and um, water storage containers, uh, they are placed all around the well pad. But generally what happens, what uh, happens with some of the bigger operators is they use what they call centralized containment facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of my pet peeves. Uh, if folks remember in 2009 when the DEC came out with the last SGEIS, They said no open pits because, uh, as just mentioning, flooding being an issue and people worrying about these uh, containment ponds being in a floodplain where the stuff could end up getting washed out into the community. So they had this big and wonderful headline, no uh, open pits. It's all going to be in storage containers or centralized containment facilities. Well, that sounds great, but then when you dig through that 850-page document, you realize that a centralized storage facility is just a really big open pit, but it's got an extra liner, so it's better than the the smaller open pits, but um, it's got an extra liner and a clay layer in between, similar to a a landfill, but instead of having, you know, a few million gallons in a pond, you've you've got this, like, 40-acre pond, practically, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's... uh, it's pretty. Um, it's a. It's a really good example of how the DEC over the years and again, with this new document that we have, they're really doing bob and weave and avoiding some of these uh, central issues that we keep bringing up. When I say we, I'm talking about the whole campaign and the multitude of organizations and community groups that are out there um, trying to get real, concrete answers to some of these problems, um, and they're avoiding those answers and um, trying to hoodwink the public. So you think that they know perfectly well 
that uh, these open, huge open storage containers are just as dangerous, if not more so, than what was initially proposed or what is already in place as a way to store uh, flow water, flow back water. And yet they're they're just ignoring the evidence and continuing as if this is going to be an adequate solution. And what would be an adequate solution? Let's get to that point. What would what, in your opinion, would be an adequate solution to storing this water? Well, I think there's uh, there's a whole series of fundamental questions, and to say that you know I have the adequate um, solution, if I knew what those adequate solutions were, if I knew the hundreds of problems that are created um, by this activity, and we had all the answers, well, there would be no problems if we did this. But that's the other centralized or central question that hasn't been answered: is we don't have the perfect answers for these problems that are created. We don't have the perfect answer. You know, New York State claims they have some of the best casing requirements in the country, um, but yet, you know, as you research how they do the casing, you realize that uh, industry acknowledges that the cement wears out after a certain amount of time, and you're creating this situation where you have, you know, an extremely perforated um, landscape and and the potential for you know down the road for all the all this casing failure that you know won't happen now while they're drilling and doing this stuff unless they you know they make a mistake which happens quite often I must say I, I need to stop you for just a second so that you can explain what casing is because I'm not sure everybody knows what that is okay well casing is the you know when they when they drill the well bore you know they're they're using a drill and drilling muds. Um, and they're drilling down through the different rock formations to reach their tar- what they call a target formation, the rock layer that has the gas in it. And then they, depending on what state you're in, there's different requirements. Um, and in New York, you know, it's a triple casing. So you've got a steel casing that is surrounded by cement, surrounded by another steel casing and another casing. Now, that's that's triple in the um, what they call the surface casing. So that's to protect the underground aquifer. Um, so that's the closest to the surface. Um, but so what you're talking about here is you know applying cement um, in a in a way, and it's not your average you know cement that you would use if you were building a barbecue out in your backyard. It's a, you know it's a much better cement, but. Um, it's got to be placed. It's got to adhere to the steel so that there's no annular cracks or or space between the steel so that the stuff can move up or down, you know, between the steel and the cement. It's got to be adhered to the surrounding on the outside part. It's got to be adhered to the surrounding rock. Um, and you know, that's a really imperfect science. I mean, it's it's great on a piece of paper, but when you start talking about different temperatures. In the ground, you know, farther down in the ground is a higher temperature and pressure that the cement is dealing with. Um, you've got the, there's a lot of science around this in terms of curing times, and that's industry will admit that's one of the main sources of groundwater contamination is casing failure. A lot of times, it's because of faulty casing or faulty cementing. They didn't cure the cement long enough before. Um, they started using it. Or the other thing that happens, I think, fairly often is when they go back to refrack a well, um, the cement has had a certain amount of stress over time. And you're talking about putting in enough pressure to break up a rock 8,000, 5 or 8,000 feet down, and you're relying on the cement to hold that same amount of pressure. So 
uh, you know, there's a lot of error that happens there. Well, I think they saw that in the um, in the British Petroleum blowout in uh, the Gulf. What, exactly. A year and a half ago, I mean, it was it was because the cement had not cured properly that the pipeline, the oh, the ring failed. You know, I mean, there were a multitude of errors there, but but one of the main errors seemed to be an issue with the um, pressure and the cement not being allowed to cure uh, sufficiently in order to support that pressure. Um, let's move on for just a second here because we're. I mean, I want to get to everything on this paper. <laughs> um, one of the things also that Mr. Holbrook said, and I and I think that this was this is this sort of speaks directly to the heart of the matter and why, for instance, uh, Governor Cuomo is is leaning towards um, fracking, uh, allowing fracking in the state, is that the studies um, he cited several studies that showed a positive long term economic impact on the state. What's your take on that? Do you think that that is an accurate assessment or or is there room for um, I mean, my feeling is, <clears throat> excuse me, that 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 gas wells don't last that long. I mean, I did quite a bit of research about them. And at least conventional ones generally tend to peter out quite significantly in the course of one to five years. So his assertion was is that he still had uh, gas wells that were pumping gas 20 and 30 years after they were dr- drilled. And I'm not, you know, I don't I'm not calling the guy a liar, but I just I found that a little bit um, glib, and I wondered what your response was in terms of the long-term, you know, jobs gained, industries uh, started, and so forth. Well, to address that question, I'm going to go ahead and lump one of his other statements in here. Sure, go ahead. Which is, you know, he made a statement about some of the studies are paid by anti-frac- um, anti-fracking activists, yes, he did say that. and they can't be trusted. Yeah. And yet, one of the most touted studies on economics was done by Penn State, paid for by the industry. Mm-hmm. And when that study came out and it mentioned however many, um, it was a hundred th- over 100,000 jobs, I don't remember the exact talk figure, but uh, that were created by drilling in the Marcellus. And then you just, all you had to do is go look at the Department of Labor statistics in Pennsylvania, and it wasn't even close. It was like 20,000. Really? And... And then, you know, he's making these over, uh, you know, these really overblown uh, economic models out there, and he's quoting that and saying, you know, this is all this incredible information. And then he turns around when someone does a study and finds uh, there's a certain amount of methane, and, well, well, that one was paid for by some uh, anti-fractivist. Well, and, and, I mean, that's just, incredible that he's able to do that on on the air and think he can get away with that well i mean uh, if people are really interested they could look up those figures themselves but i you know i just want i want people to realize that um you know studies are paid for by different groups and organizations and just because it comes out of a university or something that you think is theoretically above um you know, influence, uh, that is rarely the case. And when he talks about anti-fractivists, I kind of wondered who those people were. Like, what are the studies that you think are... Yeah, I, mean, I don't who's know which paying for those? he was, he was yeah. speaking to exactly. But I mean, the only anti-fractivist you know, has been the, the things, New York Times, as far as I can tell. In terms of health impacts uh, and air pollution, you know, mm-hmm. the town of Dish was not getting satisfactory um, air quality monitoring from the state of Texas. Uh-huh. So they pay, you know, they use three quarters of their town budget to pay for an air study with an independent. So I don't know if that's the kind of anti-frackers he's talking about. I mean, in that case, anti-frackers, sure, you can stick that label on them, but they're people who are living with benzene at extreme levels in their air, and they're breathing this stuff, and the state agency is not responding. So they've become activists to protect themselves. Yeah. 
and and they're paying to have this information found because up to this point since the 90s they've had this you know combination of horizontal drilling and hydrofracking and it's created this boom going after tight formation gas and problems are um, happening all across the country and there isn't a lot of good science out there except from the industry and their their information is all skewed and another example uh... if you you know industry always touts is the stuff is eight thousand feet down there's all these containment layers there's no way for the contaminants to come up unless there's um, mechanical or human error but if casing, if everything's done right, it's going to stay down there. And then yet you go and look at industry information, industry studies, you find out that before they were doing this, when they were going after conventional gas, they would go out into places where there's natural fractures and faults uh-huh. that, they, that they know about um, across the landscape. You can get it from geologic maps. You find these faults, you go to those areas, and they do soil tests in that area. When they find the presence of methane in the soil, they test the methane to see if it's deep formation, formation methane or methane from closer to the surface. If it turns out to be deep formation, that tells them that there's potentially a gas pocket um, somewhere where this gas has migrated up from a lower level and then it's trapped by a different um, rock formation, either a salt dome or... An imper- another impervious layer of shale or limestone, it gets trapped in the limestone. So they're using science, geologic science, that says this stuff migrates and moves on its own to find conventional gas. And then they turn around, and when they start talking about shale gas, well, there's no way this stuff can come up. Well, it's documented out there in their own information that it, that it moves. And this is how they identify where they want to drill, whether it's conventional yeah, or when they, hydrofracking. Yeah, well, when they were going for conventional pockets of gas, that's how they used to do it. Well, hydrofracking is by no means a new technology. I mean, as you know, and we discussed uh, back in 2010, this is a 25- or 30-year-old type of technology. It's just that it's it's now become, I don't know, economically viable because of the, the higher price of natural gas to extract gas in this fashion. Wes, let's take like a 30-second break so I can take a breather here and figure out where we're going next. And uh, we'll come right back with Wes Gillingham of the Catskill Mountain Keeper Organization. This is Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we'll be back in just a second. We're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're discussing hydrofracking in upstate New York today, and my guest is Wes Gillingham from the Catskill Mountain Keeper. Um, so, Wes, let's keep going on this idea of one of the other things that uh, Dennis mentioned was that it brings a long-term energy benefit to uh, state customers who would not otherwise necessarily be able to access natural gas. What's the impact of that on people's lives? I mean, why why is that going to be a good thing? Well, 
it's questionable what he's referring to. Number one, industry, as far as I know, unless they've really changed their tune, where, where they're coming into the Marcellus region, they're not talking about supplying gas for anybody who's sitting over this. Uh, they're, this is going to be going into pipelines. They're not building um, special access to that pipeline. They're, they're going to be taking it to the downstate, to the general market. Uh, so he could be referring to sometimes in leases, you sign part of your lease says the use of natural gas. If you, if you already have a access to that where you live, um, you know, they'll basically pay for it, but they're not necessarily taking the gas from your property and then giving you a, a share. Um, and it's a little confusing because, you know, one of the things that's happened now with uh, the shale gas boom is industry is really clamoring to create new markets for their gas because they've got more than they can sell, basically. That's why the price has dipped so low. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the companies that have operated for years have never had sections of their corporation to deal with creating new markets, and now they're spending quite a number of resources on doing just that. And that's one of the main problems here because if we go the route of shale gas development and just let it happen wherever they want to go after it, the Marcellus Shale, the Utica Shale, uh, we're going to create a dependence on natural gas. You know, you're going to be changing fleets of trucks over to natural gas and all this stuff. It's really going to keep our addiction to fossil fuels, and it's really going to be an impediment to making a serious transition over to alternative energy uses. Well, I can certainly see how that would be. Um, but let's talk for a minute about uh, the impact on drinking water, because I think that's, for most people, that's kind of the heart of the issue. And certainly for people who live in the New York City area, almost all of our water comes from upstate in that watershed under the Catskill Mountains. And, you know, he was, uh, one of the things that Mr. Holbrook said was that methane is exists in water supplies anyway, and it goes back to the conversation or the, the comment you made earlier about the foot, the thumbprint that it has, whether it's deep shale gas or surface shale gas, um, and how that affects drinking water. And so should people really be scared about this? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, methane is not something that's going to um, harm you physically, right? Or is it just is it just the the dangerous the danger of an explosion <laughs> in your pipes, or is it something that you really don't want to drink? Just ask it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the scariest part about methane in your water is actually inhaling it when you're taking a shower. Mm. Um, I think there's probably a much more serious health risk for people who have methane in the water from taking showers than actually drinking it, um, obviously that depending on the level here. But um, there is a serious you know, threat in, in a lot of places now on those gas fields of explosions, and people are living with vents on their wells so that the stuff doesn't get trapped in their basement. But again, you know, that he's taking a partial truth, um, or a truth that methane does appear in drinking water supplies in places, and it comes from two sources. One can be shallow methane um, that's uh, into in drinking water, uh, and it, but it's in such small amounts that people don't usually notice it, or it, um, it's not re- much of a problem and, and less of a health problem. It may be a health problem on, on low levels like that over the long term, but. 
what ends up happening here, um, you also have places where there is methane coming from deeper formations, as I mentioned before, in terms of natural faults um, and fractures. And to me, that tells me that that's a place that you should question whether you should be drilling there or not. Mm-hmm. And that's a question that should have been, if industry, which the industry is countering the claims by the folks in Dimmick that are now dealing with um, really contaminated water now, the nine square mile area, uh, they have serious problems with their water. And industry PR is out there saying they had water, they had methane in their water before. Well, if that's true, there should have been some really intensive testing done because that tells me that that's a possibility that there are already existing fractures in the rock formation that could be potential pathways for the stuff to get out and you shouldn't be drilling there. And that's one of the main problems with New York State's regulations as proposed right now. They have one single gas drilling regulation across the entire state. Anybody in their right mind cannot tell me that the geologic conditions that exist in Buffalo are the same that exist in in the Catskills and they're the same in Rochester and Albany. That's just ludicrous. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. Um, I want to just address one last thing before um, we sort of wrap this up. Um, A lot of the upstate counties, when I travel north, which I seem to have done quite a bit of this year, have no fracking signs posted on their lawns and on roadsides. What, what, I mean, you're probably closer to the general population of, of upstate and agricultural New York, certainly, than I am. What, what's your sense of the pulse up there about this? Are people for it because of the job creations, or are they against it because they recognize the dangers? Uh, well, it's actually pretty interesting because a poll, a poll that was just done um, in Sullivan County, uh, it was a... Uh, it showed that seven out of ten Sullivan County residents do not want natural gas ex- extraction by means of hydraulic fracturing. That was the question, and seven out of ten people in this uh, poll said they did not want to see it in their. It shows you guys have been doing your job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, do and you I think-, think you know one of the things, and I, I see this play out on many issues. Uh, you have people that live in these communities, multi-generational. There's a lot of um, family ties, you know, across the community. And when something controversial comes up, there's people that are out there saying we want it and people that are out there saying we don't want it. And there's a lot of people that just don't really want to upset their neighbors right now and they're just minding their own business, but they may have an opinion. And that's when you get you get this information like this. Um, you know, because if you read the papers, you would... Uh, think in Sullivan County it was a 50-50 split, but, but but then when you do the poll, you find out that seven out of ten people don't really want it. But a lot of people are not speaking out about it because they're just you know they're working and trying to pay their check or make their check at the end of the week. Sure. Do you so. think that their voice is going to be heard by um, by Andrew Cuomo? Well, I'm certainly doing everything I can to help him hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things that we really really have to focus on here is that somehow it appears that Andrew Cuomo thinks he can push this through for whatever political reasons, political gain or uh, economic gain that he thinks is out there, and uh, he's not going to pay the price of it. And I think what he's starting to feel now is people are really upset by that and this Mm -hmm. idea that he's fast-tracking it. And uh, it's... um, he's going to have a rude awakening um, when he starts to realize how many people are upset by this. 
I hope so. Um, before we uh, close here, Wes, I just want to um, let people know that on November 21st, the Delaware River Basin Commission is voting on whether to adopt its regulations to guide drilling in the Delaware River Corridor, part of which sits in Sullivan County. I'm reading this, by the way, from your website, from that um, Steve Israel thing. And the meeting, which is expected to attract scores of pro and anti-demonstrators, will be held at 10 a.m. at the Patriots Theater 1 Memorial Drive in Trenton. And there's a whole series of meetings that are going to be open to the public in November and December. And can people find that information on your website? Yes. And that is www.catskillmountainkeeper.org, correct? That's it. That's great. Listen, Wes, I really appreciate you joining us today. I hope to have you and Dennis Holbrook back together next month for another little debate about some of the finer points of those regulations, um, which, again, people can find. I think it's on the DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation. It's on their website. They can download or look at the PDF of the of the re- proposed regulations and decide for themselves whether or not this seems like a good idea for New York State and our farmlands and our water table. Yeah, and get out to those hearings, whether yeah. you plan on testifying or not. We That's need right. To, um, to be there. We need to show bodies. Well, thanks a million, Wes, and uh, we'll be in touch in the next couple of weeks to set up the next event. This has been uh, the second episode of Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We'll be talking further with authors, um, people in politics and policy in the next coming weeks. Next week, you can expect to hear from the demonstration down in Wall Street, Occupy Corporate Food, which is being organized organized by members of the New York University Food Studies Program. Uh, The week after that, we can look forward to Alex Prudhomme, nephew of Julia Child, author of My My Life in Provence, who will be coming on to talk about his new book, Ripple, um, yeah, Ripple the Water, I'm sorry, I just blanked on his name, but anyway, Alex Prudhomme and Ben Hewitt will be coming on uh, later in the month to talk about making dinner safe. So please stay tuned to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Thanks to my sponsors and thanks to my engineer and producer and partner in crime, Jack Inslee. See you next week.